verses 1 to 10. We've titled the message, The Lord's Lost and Found Parables. It could be a little misleading, although you can see three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, but it's really one story. It's one parable. It's, there's one theme that runs through the entire um, parable stories. So it's really just, it's, there are three parables, but it, it's, it's one. It's a heavenly story with an earthly uh, meaning. This is probably one of the best-known chapters in all of Scripture, one of the most beloved. This is a powerful section of Scripture, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So we're going to look at just the first two portions, and then next week, the Lord wills, we'll come back and we'll look at the lost uh, two sons, really, both sons. But this week, we're going to look at the sheep and very briefly on the coin. 15 is the chapter, 1 to 10 of the verses. Hear now the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven than over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, we're here by divine design, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved. Make it a word of comfort for those in storm winds and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we would ask that you would meet us in our deepest place of need today, but not as we prescribe the need, but rather as you do. For you know what we need and when we need it. So come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts, that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. Okay, the Lord's lost and found parables. Three headings, real simple, very brief, and then we'll go to the Lord's table together today. Okay, number one, under the lost and found, we're going to find a challenge that Jesus is going to present to the religious leaders. Number two, we're going to see a contrast in this narrative. And finally, number three, we'll look completely and solely at the Christ. Remember, the goal in Scripture is to be drawn in. You're to be drawn into the story, to the passage. And there's two things you want to recognize in, in each Scripture passage. The first is, what is the author's original intent? This book was written to an original audience, all of the different books over all of the different years, right? 40-plus authors, 1,500-plus years, three languages, three continents, So what's the original intent the author had in mind? And remember, the ultimate author is God. So once we see the original intent, what we call the first horizon, we can go to the second horizon and see what does it mean to you today? It speaks to you today because it's all in the mind of God who laid all of it out. One word from one God to one world. 
So it's important that we see that. But I want to make a point here before we go into our, our, our headings. Because it's, you have a Bible and you see all the breaks in your Bible, the chapters and, and, and the paragraphs. and the That didn't exist. And we can miss something if we're not careful. So I want to make sure that we take a look at the end of chapter 14 and the, chapter, the beginning of chapter 15 before we dive into our points. We can miss what we call the associations in the biblical text. And we have to see the last thing Jesus just said in chapter 14. The chapters are inserted. They're not inspired. The Word of God is inspired, yes? But the chapters are not. Those were Bible commentators. They put them in for ease of reading. If you had taken the original manuscript in the Greek, the New Testament, you would have had it run on from beginning to end. There's no break. All of the words are just connected. It would be very difficult to read and to study, so they're broken up for our understanding. But sometimes the breaks are a little bit unnatural. And this is one here. Take a look at the last verse in 14. It'll be on the screen. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, that's a divine imperative. That's a command from God. You know the commands? Thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a command to hear and to continually hear. But this is what Jesus just finished saying. What did he say just before this? We unpacked it last week. The cost of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? The hate that would happen in your family. And we made it clear that Jesus wasn't teaching us to hate your mother, father, sister, brother. What was he saying? Love everyone as much as you possibly can, but love me more. The love that you have for me should make everything else look like hate. Because you should love me supremely. And then he says, you must take up your cross and... Follow me. So he finishes the chapter with, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is key to be drawn into the story. This is why you'll see the religious leaders so angry. Now, what's the first verse of 15, which really there should be no break? Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to do what? Okay, got it? There it is. They're connected. That's why these religious leaders are so angry with Jesus Because they had a paradigm understanding of who was going to be saved at the end of the age. And it wasn't sinners. It wasn't them. So let's keep going further here so that we can get to our first point. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, this man welcomes sinners. There should be a period there, right? That should be enough. Why do they add and he eats with them? It's a cultural context for us to understand. Sometimes in this culture we don't understand the, the full extent of what's happening back then. (laughs) <laughs> That's okay. We, but in some cultures today, eating still means something, right? And for, for most of us, sometimes eating does. But in the ancient world, eating was very significant. It was a very deep statement that was being made when you were invited to table fellowship with someone. So they went further. It's not just enough to know that he welcomes sinners, but he actually takes time to eat with them. So what does that mean? Get in the minds of those in that cultural context. It meant companionship. They were companions. It also meant friendship, but then it gets worse. You ready? It meant acceptance. This is what drove the religious leaders crazy. They couldn't understand how sinners could be accepted. How do you accept prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners? How do you do that? See, they misunderstood the scriptures. They misunderstood more deeply what? The heart of God. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Who's gathering to hear? Not the Pharisees. Their ears were stopped up. They didn't have anything to learn. They weren't listening to Jesus. It was those who knew they were lost. What's the great challenge? And when we get to the parable of the lost son, what's the great challenge in the church today? Those who don't think they're lost, right? That's the elder brother. The elder brother was just as lost as the younger brother, but it didn't look like it because he was doing everything the father was telling him to do. But when it finally got to the end, his heart was exposed. 
And Jesus exposed the heart of the elder brother, the pharisaical heart that was lost. It's easy to see the irreligious, right? Those who are on the run from God, those who are outside the, 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 the covenant community and running away from God and doing a lot of bad stuff. It's easy to identify those people. But what about those who are close to God? Those who are giving their time, their talent, and their treasure. They're showing up each week to church. They're doing the stuff that, that the book tells them to do. It's a heart issue. It's a heart that needs to be transformed, and we'll get to that next week. But that's what's happening right here with these religious leaders. He says that you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You have no idea who I am. So Jesus is going after the religious leaders. Let me give you a quote so that we can get in the cultural understanding of the tax collector. Think of whoever you think is the worst sinners today, whoever you think they are. That's who the tax collectors were. Let me give you a quote from 4th century church, early church father, the archbishop of Constantinople. Chrysostom, St. Chrysostom wrote these words so that you can get a better understanding of how these tax... Remember, tax collectors were Jews working for Rome, collecting taxes for Rome, but they were allowed to collect more than what Rome required. They'd made an agreement with Rome. They would collect their tax. Then they were free to get as much as they wanted. So they stole and they robbed and they hurt their people. So they were hated. So St. Chrysostom says these words, the tax gatherers is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, and of specious greed. They were hated. So here's a couple more points on them. They were repudiated throughout Jewish society. They were renounced in the synagogue. They, they, they wouldn't accept their money. And you know how much that the religious leaders loved the money. They wouldn't take their alms. And then finally, they were rejected in the Jewish court of law. They couldn't give testimony, just like a woman could not. Neither could the tax collectors. So this was a hated group. So now you're inside the mind of the religious leaders who are watching Jesus, and they are overwhelmed with anger and hostility that he meets and greets and eats with these people. They would never dream of doing that. They, they, they were the in crowd, and everyone else was out. And they had no interest in hanging with anyone who was out. And that's the problem today in many churches. We have these little drawbridges, and we draw them up, and we shut everything down, and we stay within ourselves. That's not the gospel. It's one of the reasons we're in Honduras, right? It's one of the reasons we take the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's why we go across where? Not just the water, but the street in our neighborhood to minister to our neighbors, to share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ with our hands and our feet. The gospel is not just going out and telling people that Christ died for their sins. It's sharing the love of Christ. Giving a cup of cold water to somebody who's thirsty, a meal to somebody who's hungry and close to someone who's naked and shelter to someone who's on the street. That's the gospel in real life. And we don't do that. Many in the church, they're just satisfied with, with the infolding on themselves. Remember, there's three aspects to, to all church life. And it has to be present in every church. Upreach, you're doing it now. You're reaching up to God. This is worship. Inreach, we have to come together. We have a bike trip. We have the rejoice. We have all of these and we come together. But then there's outreach. You've got to get out. You've got to get out. Why? They're not coming. They weren't coming to Jesus. Jesus went out to the people. You know, if Jesus had, had arrived and set up shop in the center of Jerusalem... Right? And hung out his little, his, little, his, little, his little name and said, okay, come to me. He didn't do that. He went to the seashore and found the fishermen. He went to where the tax collectors were. He went to where the prostitutes were. He went to the, because the people weren't coming to him. That's the gospel. That's the hands and the feet of the gospel. And this is what drove them mad. So Jesus eats with sinners because they, like what? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son 
are in need of being found spiritually. And who's the lost sheep? Say, I am. Say, I am. Who's the lost coin? Say, I am. Who's the lost son? Say, I am. Good. Now we're getting it? Right. Because that's us. But they couldn't see that. They were holier than thou. They, were, they, they, they missed it. Okay, you ready? Going to head out into some deep water. Let our nets down for a catch. Number one, there's going to be a challenge. Now, we've got to remember, there's not only a challenge to them, there's a challenge to us because we're all what? We're all recovering Pharisees, yes? Yes, yes. Some are a little further along than others. Some are a little further to go than others. But we are all recovering Pharisees because the human heart beats what? For the self. It always beats for the self. And it's only the transformation of the gospel that gets it to beat for something other than the self. It beats for the Savior, and it begins to beat for Christ, okay? So now he's going to attack their self-image. They have this picture of who they are. They're the untouchables. Now he's going to attack their self-image, and watch how he does it. Only Jesus could do this. You ready? He's going to have two questions. He's going to give, now remember how Jesus always is asking questions? Questions do what? When I'm speaking to the unbelieving skeptic, right, the, the, anyone, whether they're scholars or bloggers and chat rumors, constantly asking questions to do what? To draw them, to draw them into the narrative that, that we're there to talk about. To get, they'll, they'll ask a question, then I'll ask a question to reframe what? The entry point into the conversation. Questions always change the entry point into the conversation. It changes the direction and the flow of where we're going. So Jesus is constantly asking questions. Watch what he does here in these questions. And they don't miss this. We could miss it if we don't understand the culture. We could read it and go, okay, what's the big deal? And it was a huge deal for them. Suppose, verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. You go, what's the big deal about that? No self-righteous Pharisee would have ever pictured himself being what? A shepherd. Is that a shepherd? So Jesus is now asking them a question to draw them out of their self-righteous thinking and put themselves in the shoes of somebody else. Suppose, just suppose, one of you has a hundred sheep. Well, if you have a hundred sheep, you're a shepherd. And you lose one. Oh, they're not happy. This was the lowest, this was a legitimate occupation. And remember, you have to go post-New Testament you got to go post-New Testament to get to where shepherds really had a bad reputation. Because shepherd is a good occupation early on in the scriptures, but things changed over time. Old Testament shepherds, who do you think of? Certainly David, shepherd boy. Moses was a shepherd. Lots of shepherds in the Old Testament, right? Right? Good. Good profession. New Testament needed shepherds. Shepherds were good, but things began to change. But clearly the religious leaders, there was a tier system for everything in their lives. And there was a tier system for shepherds. They had no contact with shepherds. They had no interest in shepherds because shepherds were what? They were uneducated. They were unskilled. And they were unclean. They were perpetually unclean. They couldn't come and worship because shepherding is 24-7. So they had no interest. So Jesus says, I want you to put yourself in, 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 the, in the capacity of a shepherd. So now they're, they're insulted. Because how do they think? Let's go to Luke 18. If the Lord leaves me alive long enough, we might get there as a church. If not, someone else will have to do it for you. But eight, because we're only in chapter 15. 18, how do they think? Ready? I thank thee, O God, that I'm not like other men. You ever say that? 
Don't say it out loud because we're live streaming. You're going to be caught. Don't say it. You ever said that? No, 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 let me reframe it. When's the last time you said that? Come on, I'm not alone, am I? I'm not alone in my mess. We've all said that. I thank thee, oh God, I'm not like Greg, Charles, Ryan. I thank thee, oh God, I'm not like Matt. We've all done it. And what, how, how did they do it? How did they do it? Who did they pick? They picked the lowest of the, I was joking, by the way. I mean, I, I'm, it was just a joke. Because <laughs> I, 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 you're always looking for somebody who's lower, right? On this, you're going to go wait. So who do they pick? I thank thee, oh God, I'm not like other men. Evildoers, robbers, tax collectors. Notice what they didn't do. I thank thee, oh God, I'm not like other men. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't do that. They don't measure up so well to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we all do that, right? Because it's always easy to find someone a little bit lower on the scale, right? So we feel a little bit better about ourselves. This is the mind of these Pharisees, and it's our mind and heart sometimes. Jesus is asking us to check the heart, okay? So if they're angry and they're insulted about being a shepherd, it gets worse, ladies. Ready? Now it's gonna, they're going to become indignant when asked to think like a woman. They're going to be asked to think like a woman. Ready? Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Now you're a woman. Oh, now they are outraged. They're outraged. We'll look at the Talmud in a minute, but they're outraged. Because you remember some of the blessings they would pray. I thank the old God, creator and sustainer of the universe, that I'm not a Gentile. You didn't make me a Gentile. You didn't make me a slave. But guess what else? They were happy they were not made. And it was believed, the rabbis believed, that women had a different soul and they were not going to be resurrected on the final end of the age. So here's the Talmud, right, from the Mishnah. This is, this is the, the, the law, right? This is the civil and the ceremonial law. And, and, and all of it, legendary, comprises the Mishnah. Here's their sequence of blessings. Ready? Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. So now Jesus says, suppose one of you is a woman. And so he's messing with them. He's tearing down their self-righteous, cold stone hearts. You think you're better than shepherds? You think you're better than women? You're the worst. And you don't see it. Your self-righteousness blinds you to the truth. You don't see it. I've come to seek and save that which is lost, and you're more lost than anyone because you can't see it. You refuse to acknowledge it. So he's, he's challenging their, their paradigm of thinking, what they thought was worth. Self-righteousness. The Pharisees were working their way to God, and they believed they could. It was believed in the commonwealth of Israel if any Pharisee, any religious leader were able to keep the law fully for one day, 600 and some laws, one day fully and completely that the Lord would have to send his Messiah. So they believed that they could eventually keep the law of God. 
Whatever favor, listen to me, right? These were Job's friends on day eight, right? If something bad is happening to you, it's happening to you because you are a sinner, right? So, so that there, there were these categories. So sinners are excluded from the kingdom of God. They believed that they were in this special category and they were working their way to God. They were working their way into God's favor because of their, their self-righteous behavior. So they believed that we're the ones who will get in. And Jesus says what? No. Oh. No, how did you miss it? You have the Hebrew Scriptures. God is working his way to you. What's, what's, what, did, what did you miss? What does Genesis 3.15 say? He promises a Messiah. He promises a Savior to come and crush the head of the serpent. All you have to do is go through a little bit of the Genesis account. In chapter 3, what happens? Adam and Eve sin. They run from God. Who chases them down? God. So what did the rabbis believe back in the ancient world? They believed that God would, at some level, perhaps, receive a penitent sinner. So if you were really sorry and you really cried out and you really did all the stuff you were supposed to do to get back in God's faith, God could receive you. They never dreamed in a million years God was chasing sinners down. That was as far as the East was from the West. And Jesus says, no, no, because you have no idea how lost you are. If I don't come to you, you can't come in. Remember, the, the worldview is what? Not just the fair. What's the worldview? The worldview is there's a mountain and God sits on top of it. All the religious worldviews say that there's God sitting on top, and what do you do? You work your way to God. The one true living God says what? You can't work your way to me. So I came down off the mountain to you. That's the difference in the, in the Christian worldview. You can't work your way to God. Okay, so are we clear? So there's this huge challenge. He's challenging the way they think. He's hitting him at a heart level. Now let's go to the contrast. This one's really easy and real simple to see. And it's, it's major. And remember, 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 who, who's the original audience? And then... Who's the audience today? We need to make sure that we understand where we fit in this story. And where are we in the story? Remember when you see a story that Jesus is in and he's in with other people? Who are you in the story? Right, right, right. You're never who? Jesus, right. Okay, just remember, everyone else in the story, that's who we are. We're never Jesus. So Jesus is in the middle of this story and he's talking to self-righteous Pharisees and if we don't see ourselves at some level there, then we miss the depth of, of what God wants us to know today because we're all still fighting that same battle. That sin nature is still there. Remember, sin no longer reigns, but it still remains and you have to still fight that battle. There's no perfection on this side of the grave and if you run into anybody who says that they've, made, that they've achieved perfection, run as fast as you can from them. You ever heard of those, ever, ever run into those people? Pastor, I think I've kind of achieved it. You do, do you? Well, why don't you tell me how you've done that? Because I haven't. The longer I walk, the further I realize I have to go. Perfection? It's unbelievable. Okay? Ready? Here's the, here's the, the contrast. You're going to look at the heart. The heart is the contrast. You're going to see the heart of God. The heart of God for you. For the lost. The heart of God for lost. Right? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, Oh, boy. You know what? You know what this is called today in the church? The gift of grumbling. None of you have that here. I know that. I know that. But some in the church have the gift of grumbling. And they grumble about all sorts of stuff that doesn't matter. Just grumble. This is the heart of the grumbler. Remember the little children of Israel? They'd been freed from Egypt. 430 years of bondage. They're freed from Egypt. And they're a day or two into their march. And they're rumbling and bumbling and stumbling in the wilderness. And what are they doing? grumbling every step of the way. They grumbled about the leadership. They grumbled about the water. They grumbled about the menu. We don't like the menu. We had garlics and leeks and melons in Egypt. Yes, we did, but we were in bondage. 
So they grumbled. The heart has a tendency to what? Grumble. We all have a little bit of that gift of grumbling. So now look what they do. They can't even say Jesus. This man. Do you know what that was? It was a derogatory, contemptuous way of identifying. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. When we get to the parable of the lost sons, it's one, but there's two that's lost. That's the whole point of the parable. What does the elder son say when the, when the younger son returns and the father has a feast? What does he say? Your, this son of yours. He can't even say my brother. It's not my brother. This son of yours. So this is the heart of the grumbler. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, that's the heart of the Pharisees, the grumblers. Now, remember Jesus walked on water? Where do they walk? Not on water. They stroll above the sea of sinners. So if you thought it was awesome for Jesus to walk on water, that was a pretty cool trick. These guys are even better. They stroll above the sea of sinners. They're not, they don't touch sinners. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. They stroll above the sea of sinners. But now, ready for the heart of God? Verse 7, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Let me just clear that. There's, he, he isn't saying there are people that don't need to repent. He's speaking. Remember, sometimes you have to speak the language of the person you're talking to. You have to know your audience. So he says, I know that you don't think you need to repent, but let me tell you something. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one who actually knows he needs to repent and does repent than over you guys who don't think you need to and you think you're in. You're not in. You're out. But he's just making a point. So everyone does need to repent, but, so don't miss that. But there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner. What happened the day that you said, I believe? There was rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. It's been given the gift of repentance and faith and comes to Christ. There's rejoicing. That's the heart of God. God rejoices over the heart of what? One sinner. You understand the point? There was one lost sheep, one lost coin. One, both sons were lost. But you understand the point. You were that valuable to him that he comes after the one lost. He comes after the one. He leaves the 99. He comes back for the one. Okay? Now, verse 10, in the same way. So it's repeated again with the woman with the lost coin. We're not going to unpack the coin thing. It's, it's fine. It's the same principle, the same parable, the same story. One thing is lost. She searches until she finds it. But then it says, in the same way, they'll be rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you want to know what that is? Don't miss this, because there are millions in the church today that don't understand this truth. And there's a reason why you're, not just the Presbyterian denomination, there's a few, but you need to understand what's called the doctrine of eternal security. And there are millions in the church that don't have this. Watch this. Don't miss this. Right here is the doctrine of eternal security. And I'm going to show you a quote from the Prince of Preachers from the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, in just a moment. In the same way, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, unless that's speaking about the, the only sinner that we know in Scripture who repents, who's given the gift of repentance and faith, and then what? Dies and is received in glory. And who's that? The good thief on the... Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Unless this is identifying him, and it, it's not because it's before him, and it can't be identifying him, then what's going on? There's rejoicing in heaven over the day that you repented, but you're still alive. You're still here. So what does that mean? You cannot lose your salvation. Do you know how many millions believe they can? What was the first thing Jesus said when he returned to the upper room? 
on the night of the first Easter morning. What did he say? What was the first word? Peace. There's no peace unless you know you're his. There can be none. Ready for the words of Spurgeon? This really rocks. Watch this. Those, there are many who deny the doctrine of eternal security. This is the perseverance of the saints, okay? But there are many who deny it. Those who deny eternal security need, ready? They need to go up to heaven and tell the angels not to rejoice until the sinner dies and goes to heaven because they may be rejoicing too soon. Anybody here want to make that trip? That's what you tell somebody who doesn't believe in the doctrine of eternal security. Listen, you need to go to heaven and tell those angels to stop rejoicing because they're rejoicing too soon. You cannot lose your salvation. How do you know that? Salvation is a, everybody say gift. Salvation is a gift. You can't lose the gift. You didn't do anything to get the gift. And you can't do anything to get rid of the gift. If you, if, how would you ever have any peace in your life if you didn't know that you were eternally secured because of what Jesus had done for you? Unless you really don't know your own heart, I would have no peace. Some of the stuff that I think and say and do, I'd never have any peace. I'd never know when, would, when, did, I finally, when did I finally get in. When, when was it finally real? Because if I were really in, I couldn't think like that. If I were really in, I couldn't say anything like that. If I were really in, I couldn't do anything like that. Is that true? It's as far as the east is from the west. You still do stuff you ought not to do, but you're in. If you are by grace through faith trusting in Christ alone. The doctrine of eternal security is there for you to know what? That you cannot separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can't separate yourself because of your sin. That's not a license to sin, so forget all those people start talking that craziness. That's not what it means. The two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first side of the coin. What does your heart beat for? But then you have to ask the question on the other side of the coin. Does your heart get troubled when you sin? It should. If it doesn't, then you might need to check your heart. But here's what I tell people who come to me, and I have had many... Pastor, I, I've come from an understanding that I think I've lost my salvation. I got this one from Steve Brown, so I won't take the credit. Steve's far more wisdom than I. You couldn't even ask that question if you weren't already his. Got it? Do you think that you're bigger and stronger than God? You would make his blood of no effect. He died for you. He came after you and sought you. And, and, and that's, that's the power to fight against the sin that still abides. You say, how do I beat this? Keep remembering it's already been crucified by Christ. Keep living for Christ, knowing that you're going to mess it up along the way. But know what he died for. Remember, Jesus didn't die to make you good. He died to make you his. And by making you his, he makes you good over time. And one day you'll be perfected and brought into glory. Got it? Clear? One scripture can give you hundreds. I'll just give you one. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none, none, none. 
There's no mortal sin that's taking your life. There's none. It does not exist. I shall lose none. Then how do you go back and reconcile what he says in chapter 14 about half-built towers? How do you reconcile that? They started to build and they didn't finish. And they have the wreckage of half-built towers all over the world. How do you account for that? They were never his. And you should know if you're his. Because you know what your heart beats for. And you know what your heart breaks for. Are you angry at sin? Do you hate sin? Do you hate injustice? Do you love God? Do you love people? None. But I will raise them up on the last day. Finally, we'll look at Jesus. Ready? It's our final point. Don't miss this, please. One sheep mattered to the good shepherd. One sheep. Ready for this? Does he not leave the 99 and go after the lost sheep? Now, who's he speaking about? The rabbis know who he's speaking about. If what I'm telling you is true, that it's one word from one God to one world, then we're going back to Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, who were the lost sheep? Israel. Israel was likened to the lost sheep. So who is Jesus talking about? The religious leaders. You're the one that's lost. You know that from the prophet Ezekiel. You've memorized all of the Old Old Testament scriptures. You know the Hebrew Bible. I'm talking to you. So it was not lost on them. But right now they can't can't hear because they can't even see straight. You compared me to a shepherd and a woman? So they've already shut him off. But now, now, now he's speaking to you. Ready? Doesn't he go after the lost sheep until? What does the word until mean? He's not going to stop until, but it goes deeper. And when, star those words, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it where? On his shoulders, a position of power and strength and authority, the shoulder. But we're going to go deeper as we always do, right? We're going to go deeper in a moment. Stay with me. And he goes home, goes home, secured. And he calls his friends and says, rejoice with me, for I have found what? My sheep. What do we tell the kids all the time? Remember, remember, Jackie, whose you are. Remember whose you are. You understand? Remember. How are your kids, when you send them off the car, how are they possibly, possibly going to do what they ought to do? Because they're going to remember you and, and, and all of the stuff that they've learned from you and you were hovering over. What are they going How? They need to remember whose they are. The only hope to, to minimize the downside, and there's always downside, right? There's all that. But what's the key? Remember whose you are. So when you're in the middle of the mess, right? What's the lost son? When, he, when, when, when he's out and eating husk with the swine, what does he remember? Whose he is. And then he comes home. We'll get to that next week. Enough said. All right? So remember whose you, my sheep. In the Old Testament, we have something about shoulders. And you want to see how the old and the new fit together, right? Let's go back to the old in Exodus. Remember the high priest? The high priest points to the ultimate high priest who is to come. They had this special high priestly garments. Let's go to Exodus 28. Don't miss this. The the sheep is on the shoulder, right? Take two onyx. This is the instruction for the, the craftsman to make the high priestly garments. Take two onyx stones and engrave the names of the sons of Israel. Six names on one stone and six on the other. And then what? Fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. What's on the shoulder pieces of the ephod? 
the people of God, the sons of Israel. Six on the right, six on the left. What do they represent? You. Your name is on his shoulders. And it says what? So that the high priest, as he walks into the Holy of Holies, will remember who he represents. But you have to understand the deeper meaning of that. So that God will remember when he will see. No, that you will remember. God's not forgetting. But you forget that your name is on his shoulders. You forget that he's lifted you and placed you on his shoulders. We always forget. When, and how do we know we forget? In that moment of decision when we choose to serve the self rather than the Savior. And it could be something as simple as impatience. It could be anxiety. It could be man-centered anger. It doesn't matter. Nothing major. Nothing scandalous. Just the stuff that causes the heart to turn away from Jesus. And we serve the self because we forgot what? Our names are on his shoulders. And his heart. And his cracked lips. The high priest in the Old Testament pointed to what? The high priest who would come in the New Testament and be the fulfillment. Ready? Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest. Who's that? Who has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith. Do you, do you see how this is, makes it easy for you to speak to your Jewish neighbors and your friends? This is not some... some, some made-up religion in, in, in first century. This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is a fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. All of this fits. That's why we do it this way. That's why I show you old and new and keep putting it together to show you how it fits. What was the high priest in the Old Testament doing? He was making atonement for the sins of his people. One day a year, Yom Kippur, he would go inside the Holy of Holies in the presence of the Almighty, and he would make atonement for his own sins and the sins of all the people of God. What did that ultimately point to? The true high priest who would come. And make the final atonement for the sins of what? All of his people. You and your names are upon his shoulders. The sheep has been placed upon his shoulders. All of this is for your comfort. My sheep. You can't separate yourself from the shepherd. You ever lost relationships in life? Of course you have. Some we lose simply by death. Gone. Yes, to be reunited in glory, but gone. You are never separated from Christ. Some other relationships, people just walk away. Had enough. I didn't sign up for this. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. Man, I didn't sign up for this. What are you doing? He doesn't say that. You're his. He loves you in spite of yourself. God only sees you in Christ. Isaiah, oh, Christmas time, we always bring out Isaiah 6, 9, 6, right? What does it say? For unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and what? But, but do you know what that means? Not just the government. The government and the godly. What's the government mean? The whole world is on his shoulders. He raises up kingdoms and he takes them down. But where is the, where is the government? On his shoulders, where does the high priest have the names of God's people? On his shoulders. Where does Jesus place the lamb? On his shoulders. I'll never forget the day that transformed my heart. I was having a really bad season. We'd lost everything at the wellness center. Losing our home in Weston. Ended up losing the home. 
living, we went from a nice big house out in Weston, living in this small shoebox on the east side of town. And I am beside myself, saying, God, you saved me for this. All that I was doing for you and your kingdom, this is, this is, this. And we're seven houses down from the school that Brock goes to, he's five. And this was the day that transformed my life. I'm angry coming home to this little house, trying to figure out, God, what are you doing? It's 2002. Brock would have been six. And we're coming down the sidewalk, and where do I have him? On my shoulders. And we're walking down the sidewalk, and I'll never forget, like it happened this morning. He grabs my cheeks, and he turns my head to his, and he says, Daddy, I bet I'm the only kid in school that goes home on his father's shoulders. I'd like to say that that was the day that everything was, but it was the beginning of the transformation of a cold heart and a pride-filled heart and a pharisaical heart and beginning to trust God and what he was doing in our lives. You're on his shoulders. And his plan is better than yours even when it's hard to see. How do we close? Supernatural security and safety is on his shoulders. Don't climb off. Don't get down. Don't try to write your own story. It doesn't work. He's got a better story for you. Stay on his shoulders. Finally, John 10, 11. I'm the good shepherd. Here's our close. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. You know that. So back to the passage. Does he not leave the 99 and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully, here's the key, he puts it on his shoulder. You've got to get the picture. I'm going to show you in a moment. You know the blogs every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? I, I never quote myself, but there, there was a reason. It just struck in my mind. I just wrote a recent blog. I didn't write it for the sermon, but there's a quote in there. I, I'm bringing it to you from the blog post. It'll come out in a few weeks. I don't know when it comes out. But I think these words make sense that tie into being on the shoulder and the sheep. Ready for this? This is from the, the, the blog post. Those same shoulders that carried you out of the grave and given you new life are the same shoulders that were beaten, whipped, and pressed against the raw bark of the cross. Those same shoulders that were able to bear the eternal judgment and wrath of God are the same shoulders that bear you up under every challenge this life throws your way. You are safe and you are secure because you have been placed upon his shoulders. Take a look. Burn that picture in your mind. But don't forget the next one. Those same shoulders were pressed against the bark of that tree. And your name was on those shoulders. In his heart. And spoken through those cracked lips. You're his eternally secured because he has placed you on his shoulders. If you don't know that truth, right now is a moment of invitation. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, you are invited to come to Christ. It's not a man-centered work. You don't come in your own flesh. But by grace through faith, God stirs the heart and raises you to life unto zeal for the things of God. Come to Christ by grace through faith. And salvation is yours today. And know that you are eternally secured. Where? On his 
shoulders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that we are yours, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that you have done, that you have saved us from wrath and judgment. You've saved us from ourselves, oh God. Thank you. Thank you. If if there's anyone here by way of the internet who has never prayed, simple prayer, oh God, I heard the truth today. I know I'm the lost, but I know you've come to me. You found me. You want me to be yours. I surrender my life and my heart to you, O God. I trust in Christ alone. And I know that now nothing will ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, for the rest, may we keep riding upon the shoulders of our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.